called your conference president. And I said, uh, Larry, I know Larry. We've played softball together in Oregon and so forth. So I called him. I said, what's the camp meeting like? Well, it's kind of rustic. I said, does, does your cell phone work there? And he said, well, what service do you have? AT&T? Probably not. I said, okay, that's good. I'll come. Now, now what you don't realize is that... Um, I do wear a lot of hats. You know, I'm the ministerial secretary. I was hired to be the conference evangelist for the Arizona Conference. Did that for less than a year before they made me ministerial director and the conference evangelist. Then I did that for probably another year, and they made me vice president for administration. Then they changed the titles all around. Then they made me executive secretary for the conference. They also asked me to be the church planting director and the human resource person. So I've looked, and for instance, Georgia Cumberland Conference has seven people doing my job. And I thought, why in the world? So when I heard no cell coverage, I was pretty excited. However, the place I'm staying has the Internet, and when I went on this, this morning, when I got back after breakfast, I had those 132 emails. I said, oh, boy. I said, I guess I can't hide. There's no place to hide. But I told them, answered a few of them, and said, I might be out of reach for the next couple of days. I'd like to actually relax and enjoy the Tahoe camp meeting. Now, I have to tell you, someone came to me last night and said, well, you don't sound like you're from New Jersey. You say you're from New Jersey. Well, I kind of lost that accent. My mother's from Kansas. My father's from North Carolina. And, you know, they got that draw, my, especially my dad. He, when he, he talks to you, he says, y'all, you know, you can hear that y'all in his accent real clearly. And, and where I grew up, they don't say y'all. When they're, when they're talking about a group of people, they say you guys. Okay? That's where I came from. And I can turn on a little New Jersey if I need to. When I'm back there visiting relatives, I'll go ahead and say to my friends and I, and my nephews and nieces and so forth. Hey, Benny, how you doing? Hey, how you doing? All right? You doing all right? You know, I can turn on the New Jersey when I need to. Forget about it. That's how they talk. Okay? For those of you who have been around. But one thing I have to say, that was part of my life for a long time. Now, after living in Oregon, Maryland, Arizona, I guess I got a mixture of accents. But I can identify with a lot of people, which is why I like your theme. The theme about Jesus. There's no greater theme on earth, is there? If you were to ask me to preach on Revelation, I would have loved to do, done that. I love the subject of Revelation. Or, or as, as Tim is doing on the book of Daniel, I love that subject. And I hope you go in here. I'm going to be there tomorrow. I hope you listen on these beautiful themes of prophecy. I would love to do it. But when I saw your theme was Jesus, I said, I want to be there. What greater theme is there on earth? than the theme of Jesus Christ. Tonight I want to share with you some incredible things about who Christ is. And I call this message Jesus the Carpenter. We looked at him as a son yesterday. Tonight we're going to look at what it means for him to be a carpenter and how that relates to us. Let's pray as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your blessings. Be with us tonight as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to believe, but oh, let me ask you, when was the last presidential election? How long ago? Too long. 
Okay, I won't get into politics. I'm just asking for a day here, okay? November, all right? It was just November. Think about that. And there are people lining up already trying to get ready for the next election. How, I mean, how long in advance does it have to be? Now, I have to tell you, it's pretty amazing. One of the number one tactics that a president, presidential candidate will use is called the identification technique. Now, what they'll do, this presidential candidate will put on, a, let's say, one of those white coats, those schmocks, and walk around a, a factory in Detroit somewhere and say, we're going to rebuild Detroit. We're going to make it great again. They spent five minutes in that factory, dressed like one of the employees. And those people who work that job, factory job, start to think, well, they must care about us. Now, whether they do or not, you know, that's hard to say. I can't judge. I'm not the judge. But there is no way on earth in five minutes a person could understand the plight of a factory worker in Detroit. It's impossible. It can't be done in that short a period of time. I have a friend, when I was pastoring in Medford, Oregon, uh, well, before I went there, but I, one of the elders of my church down there ran a lumber mill. In fact, one of the largest independent lumber mills left in the state of Oregon. He, had a, he got a call from President George I, George Bush, when he was campaigning for president. And he said, I'd like to come to your lumber mill. He said, I'd like to be there. I'm going to send the team in ahead of time to kind of make, th make sure things are secure and so forth. Well, this man, I won't mention his name, but he got his lumber mill ready, and they spent about $75,000 fixing up the place so that the first President Bush, so that George could come in, so it was secure, so he wouldn't get shot, and I understand that. You want it to be safe. Had all the guys with the black suit and the black sunglasses and the black ties and the little thing in the ear. Well, I got one, too. And they'd hit that little button. Uh, okay, Joe, it looks safe over there. Yeah, okay, it's good. You know, remember, you've seen those guys, right? And they set the place up. They even set up a stage. And he spoke to those factory workers, those lumber mill workers. He was there, oh, a total of 20, 25 minutes. Plane flew in, landed, got in a limousine cavalcade, if you will, motorcycles in front, took him over, met with people, spoke, said a few words, and disappeared. Now, from what I understand, those that were there were pretty excited about it. One of my friends got a trip to the USS George Washington out of it. He was pretty excited about it. He was the guy who was key key person in organizing this thing, to, to get to go on a USS, you know, George Washington and aircraft carrier. He spent three days out there at sea with the sailors. He was excited about it. What a great experience for him. He said that's all he wanted to do was to be on one of those vessels. And that's what they gave him as a gift for taking care. You know, the presidential, uh, you know, uh, campaign there in, in that part of Oregon. What can 20 minutes do? I'm not saying anything bad about President George. He might have actually been very sincere very caring about the plight of those poor lumber workers who were losing their jobs by the hundreds throughout Oregon because of 
sometimes tree huggers because of sometimes politics, because of sometimes this and that. He might have been very serious about it. But there's no way, no matter how sincere he was, that he could understand what a lumberjack or a lumber worker goes through in 20 minutes. Now I want you to think about this. God could have sent Jesus. What did Jesus have to do for us? He had to die so that we could have a Savior, right? That was all He had to do for us. He could have sent Jesus to planet Earth and died in 20 minutes. And He would have fulfilled what He needed to. Why why then did He live 30 plus years? I'll tell you why. So that He can understand the plight that you and I go through. Amen? God didn't make some low pass on planet Earth. He came in the form of His Son to show us how to live and to be a Savior who can identify with all our needs. Take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 and 6. It says this, talking about, you know, when Paul writes, I love the writings of Paul, he says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He was in the very form of God, the Bible says, but he, it, it wasn't robbery for him to be equal with God because he was God, right? But it goes on to say, he laid that down. He became a man so that we could have a Savior. And not just a man for a few minutes, but indeed a man who lived in an, a life on planet Earth. Do you know what the average lifespan was of a person, a man in particular, in the year zero, or well, there was no zero, one B.C.? Okay, about 40, probably 40. Scholars have it anywhere from 38 to 43, 44 years old. That was the average lifespan. So Jesus lived a pretty full life, when you think about it, in those days. So he knew what it was like to live on planet Earth. I love this passage, John 1, 14, we all know it. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this. And the Word became what? Flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He became flesh. He became human. He understood our plight. God wasn't trying to give an illusion of identification. He didn't send Jesus to make a low pass on planet Earth. No putting on of man's clothes for a few moments or a year or so. Instead, God in the form of Jesus Christ became, took on human flesh and lived as a man. I told you Desire of Ages was going to be the next, uh, other than the Bible, the next book I would use the most while I was here. Well, here's another statement. Desire of Ages, page 19. To this sin-darkened world, or earth, excuse me, he, that is Jesus, came to reveal the light of God's love. Think about that. To be God with us. That's where the word Emmanuel comes from. By coming to dwell with us, Jesus was to reveal God both to men and to angels. That's right. Think about that. Didn't angels know who God was? When he came to earth, they got a true picture of the purest outpouring of love that angels would ever see. They would never leave God's sight ever. 
ever, would, that, would there ever be a rebellion in heaven after seeing what Jesus was willing to do? The commander of the universe to come to this earth and suffer the way he did. They'd never leave his side. So even angels understood God better after Jesus came. And then it said, then it says in that little uh, statement, he was the word of God, God's thought made all audible. What was the reason God sent Jesus to this earth? First of all, to give us a Savior. No question about it, we need it. You know, in my 52 plus years of life, I've only met one perfect person. Well, at least that's what he claimed. I was in going to Columbia Union College. I was on a train, on one of the metros, riding. I was sitting next to a guy. I was, I was reading my Bible. I was sitting next to a guy, and I said, Hey, where are you going? He goes, Well, I'm on my way to... Georgetown. I'm studying to be a lawyer. He said, oh, really? Oh, that's pretty cool. He goes, well, what are you doing? I said, well, uh, I'm just riding downtown. I want to get away from school for a while. What school are you going to? I'm going to Columbia Union College. Make Georgetown look, you know, a little bit small, you know. And he goes, you mean Columbia in New York? No, 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 Columbia Union College. What? I haven't heard of it. I said, well, it's in Tacoma Park, Maryland. I've heard of that. I said, well, it's a Seventh-day Adventist school. Oh, you're a Seventh-day Adventist. Absolutely. Isn't everyone? Shouldn't everybody be? And he looked back at me and goes, well, I'm a Catholic. He was pretty proud of it. I said, okay, that's fine. And then I started sharing with him a little bit about what I believe. Because he asked me, he said, well, what do you believe? I said, well, here, here, blah, blah, blah. And I shared with him some of the similarities, some of the differences. And, and then I said, well, since you know who I am, and since I know who you are a little bit, and we've got one stop left, I'm going to make it quick. Are you saved? Now, I got that from my Baptist upbringing. Adventists don't use that term very often. So I looked at him and I said, are you saved? He goes, saved from what? I said, saved from sin. And he looked back and he goes, I don't sin. I said, so, so are you perfect? He goes, absolutely, I've never committed a sin. I said, are you kidding me? You're studying to be a lawyer and you've never committed a sin? Forgive me, lawyers in the room. Okay. And so he said, um, well, I don't, I don't cheat on my wife. I said, okay, well, that's good. All right. Let me get a scorecard out for you real quick. Uh, have you ever told a little white lie? Yes. Okay, check. Uh, have you ever, you know, done something? Have you ever cheated on a test somewhere in, in elementary, high school, college? Yeah. You know, by the time I was finished with my little checklist, I showed him this little piece of paper and it had checks all over it. I said, those, my friend, are sins. We get to his exit and he didn't want to get out of the train. So he goes, well, listen, I'm on here already. Finish this off. What are you trying to tell me? I said, I'm going to tell you how you can be saved. And in a matter of, you know, we rode all the way out to Bethesda, Maryland. I mean, we were going the wrong way. And then had to ride back, and I missed my stop, too. But after, after a few moments with him, he realized he wasn't perfect. The only person I've ever met in my life that thought he was really perfect. Well, unfortunately, I burst that bubble in a billion pieces. And he realized he needed a Savior. We cannot be perfect. We can't be saved. We can't have perfection unless God puts it on us. Amen? It's His perfection, not ours. That's His. It belongs to Him. And I think this guy got a picture. I never saw him again. I'd love to give you some bungee snapping. Yeah, he became, you know, Ron Harrison. No, that didn't happen. 
I never saw him again. But he did get an idea of what it means to be saved. And I want to tell you today, that's the main reason why Jesus came to this world, to give us a Savior. He also came to give us an example of how to live. We were floundering around the human race, just not knowing what to do. Jesus came, lived for us the perfect example of a human life. Male, female, doesn't matter. Old, young, he showed us how to live. But he also came to be sympathetic to our plight. Today I want you to see three ways in which Jesus can truly identify with mankind. He's not only a Savior, but He's a Savior who understands us. At the core of the claims of anyone who's ever felt isolated, alienated, lonely, sinful, guilty, is this statement. No one understands me. Have you ever heard someone say that? I've heard it hundreds of times. I asked a musician, I was a little too late, probably should have called him a month ahead of time. But there's a little song that says, no one understands, but what's the rest of it? Like Jesus. No one understands like Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? No one understands like Jesus. I want you to think about that for a second as we spend some moments together studying God's Word. There are three things I want you to keep in mind about Jesus' personality. He understands our plight, no question about it. And the first way he understands our plight is in our human relationships. You say, how can that be? He didn't have really human relationships, did he? Oh, yes, he did. He understands family relationships. He understands friendships. He understands workplace relationships. In fact, I thought, it you know, I look back at it and I say it was genius for God to bring him as a skilled laborer. You know, he could have been born into a priest's home, been raised in the priesthood, and went right out to ministry, and he could have still been a perfect example for us. But I want you to think about it. Who would he be able to relate to? Priests, preachers, pastors, maybe, ministers. He came in a way he could relate to everyone. Just amazing. You know, a lot of times we wonder at his birth, the nativity, an incredible experience, how God could place this child in the womb of Mary and be born beautiful. Incredible event. Then we take him from there and put him to 12 years old. We, look at, we looked at that passage a little bit yesterday. As a boy, what was Jesus like? And then we take him from 12 and bring him to 30 when he starts his ministry. What happened in between there? What was going on in those 27, 28, 29 years before he started his earthly public ministry? He was a carpenter. And a good one as well. Jesus, I want you to think about this. At one point in his life, was a little boy. He was he was a toddler. Can you picture that? A toddler. You know what my kids were like as toddlers? They knocked down tables. They hit themselves in the head with things. And we did everything we could to childproof the house. I have a daughter. My son's the calm one in the family. He's the relaxed one. I have a daughter who, you know, one day at two years old decided she was going to learn how to mountain climb. I, I'm in the living room working on something, writing and so forth, and I hear all this noise. I come around the, I come around the kitchen, and there she is on top of the refrigerator. I said, well, do you want something to eat, sweetheart? You know, I can open the refrigerator. No, I just want to climb, Daddy. Okay, well, don't climb in the refrigerator. You could fall off and kill yourself. Okay, so I pull her down. 
you know, can you imagine Jesus as a toddler? That must have been frightening. Well, Jesus was also a teenager. Picture that. He may not have had to deal with some of the things teenagers deal with today, like drugs and so forth. But as a teenager, Jesus had to deal with pressures that teenagers have to deal with. He was a college-age kid at one time. And he had to deal with those pressures as well. He was a member of a family. Here's a verse that some people don't even... They skip right over. Mark chapter 6, 1 to 3. I want you to write it down if you don't have your Bible, but read along with me if you do have your Bible. Mark chapter 6, 1 to 3. It says, Then he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogues. And many hearing him were astounded. Think about that. Saying, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this in which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the what? Carpenter. They didn't say, is this not the preacher? It says, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. Think about that. He had aunts. He had uncles. He had cousins. He had sisters. He had brothers. He had a mother, a father. He had relatives. So he knew what it was like to be in a family. There are some today, young people, who say, my parents don't know what it's like to be young today. They don't know what I'm going through. They don't understand my plight on earth. When they're tempted to say that, I wish I could be right next to them and say, yes, you're right. You know, some of us have forgotten, including myself. But no one understands you like Jesus. Amen? Jesus understands because he's been there. He certainly understands your plight. Take a look at Psalm 62, verse 8. It says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge. Pour out your heart to God. He does understand. Think about that. He truly understands our plight. Whatever it may be, we're struggling with relationship, a spouse that doesn't understand, a child or whatnot. Jesus understands that plight. You know, when we were in Lincoln City, you know, Kay and Jim here were with me back then. We had a theme song we would always play before our prayer. It was, I cast all my cares upon you. Remember that theme song? Well, that comes from 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, casting all your care upon him, for he what? Cares for you. So instead of when you're tempted to say, no one can understand the frustration I'm having with my family. Instead of being tempted to say, no one understands, turn to Jesus and cast your care upon him. There have been times where that was the most freeing thing that ever happened to me. When I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church, I'm going to share that Sabbath morning. As a testimony, you know, I, I can only praise God for the way He led in my life. I could, I could be dead, I could be in jail, I could be hooked on drugs. I don't know how He did it, but He somehow got through to me. But I will tell you this, when I joined the Seventh-day Adventist Church, invited all my, I have three siblings, two sisters and a brother, mom and dad, I invited them all to be there for my baptism in a little pond there in southern New Jersey. None of them came. My dad was a hardline, he called himself... Have you ever heard this term, hard shell Baptist? Well, his shell was harder than most. It was like tank armor. 
I mean, you were not going to get through to him. I mean, he was tough. And the rest of the siblings and mom was a little... I think they wanted to come, but they didn't. I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to join the Seventh-day Adventist church. He looked at me and said, Seventh-day Adventist church? What are you, nuts? Those people are a cult. They go to church on the wrong day and they don't eat pork. And I said, well, you got it half right. <laughs> I think they go to church on the right day. And so we sat down and he was so mad. My family could not understand the decision I made. They didn't understand me. I felt isolated. And like the song leader said, when you feel isolated, the song, what is the song we sing? What was it? What a friend we have when who? Jesus. He's a friend. Beyond compare. You can take everything to him. When you feel isolated, lonely, you feel like your family just doesn't understand you, take it to him in prayer. Talk to him. He's the one that can get you through that. Jesus understands what you're going through. He's had brothers and sisters. The second, second way Jesus identified with us is in the area of human labor. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Mark 6, 3 says it shows, it shows that he was called the carpenter. They must have known him. He must have had some special skill, and they felt pretty good about it. Now, no dispersion on carpenters today. I believe carpenters work pretty hard. I've been around a lot of carpenters. But they don't work like the carpenter did in Jesus' day. Jesus didn't have a radial arm saw. He didn't have a skill saw or a jigsaw. He didn't have power tools. He didn't have a compressor running all night long while you're trying to sleep over across the street while they're working on the house. He didn't have any of that stuff. He didn't have prefabricated material. There was no Home Depot. There was no Lowe's. There was no Lumberman's. The carpenter in those days was responsible for the entire scope of the project. Have you ever thought about that? He was responsible to go out into the woods, cut down the tree that was needed, have a donkey or something drag the tree back, cut the limbs off, start preparing whatever it was that he was building, helping build a house or whatever. He was responsible for the excavating, for the foundation work, for the walls, for the roof, all of it. There were no specialists in his days. There were no D9 dozers. There was no 235 backhoes. None of that stuff existed in his day. He was a man's man. Amen? You know, a lot of times I get so frustrated when I see these TV programs, or movies, I should say, showing Jesus as this, you know, emaciated little skinny guy that can hardly hold his pants up. You know, it's embarrassing. This guy was built. He's dragging trees out of the forest. He can knock over any NFL lineman out there. You know, and we look at him like, oh, this poor little guy, don't touch him, he's real fragile. No, I don't think so. Not a carpenter in those days. He was responsible for all the work. He was a contractor who knew full well the frustrations of a day's work. With exhaustion, with exasperation, he, I could picture him going to bed at night saying, i got to do this again tomorrow. Can you imagine? Now, when I was working, I worked for a Pontiac dealership for a little while, and I remember coming home greasy, dirty, filthy. I knew I had to take a shower before I went to bed. I was going to ruin the sheets. I always say, oh, I'll just sleep on the floor because I'm too tired to take a shower. He felt those. He had those experiences. He knows full, way market, full well marketplace temptations because he worked. 
I'm sure he had to sell, go with his dad, Joseph, and sell chairs and furniture and different things in the marketplace. There's no question he understood that. Can't you see the wisdom that God had in bringing Jesus as a carpenter instead of a preacher? He became the greatest preacher that ever lived, obviously. The wisest man that ever lived wasn't Solomon, it was Jesus. No question about that. But can't you picture, can't you understand why Jesus would do that so that he could understand our plight? Again, Desire of Ages, page 72. It says this, Jesus lived in a peasant's home and faithfully and cheerfully acted his part in bearing the burdens of the household. He had been the commander of heaven. Think about that. The commander of heaven. And angels had delighted to fulfill His Word. Now, He was a willing servant, a loving, obedient Son. We talked about that last night. He learned a trade. And with His own hands, worked in the carpenter's shop with Joseph. In the simple garb of a common laborer, He walked the streets of the little town, going to and from His humble work. So how is it in your workplace? Are you tempted to cut corners at times? Is it frustrating to have to work alongside with people who ridicule you for your faith? I remember shortly after I became a seven-day Adventist, I said, I can't continue doing what I'm doing. It's driving me crazy. So I took, took some classes and became an EMT. Then I went a little further and became a paramedic. I said, well, this is a good field. I'm saving people's lives. Well, in Atlantic City, they had a barracks for the paramedics. And let me tell you, the things that were talked about in those barracks were not very heavenly by any means. I would stay away while the guys were all hanging out, telling their dirty jokes and watching awful stuff on the videos and so forth. I'd go in the other room, sit by my bed and read my Bible until the call came through. Medcom, the Medic 6. We have a man down on Atlantic Avenue at blah, blah, blah. ETA. ETA, you know, one, one and a half minutes, whatever. I remember those days very well because they called me the Bible man. Now, I'm okay with that. You know, at the time I was a little humbled by it, you know, the Bible man. Well, those guys in those barracks knew nothing about the Bible, so I guess I was the Bible man. What little bit I knew. But I shared it every every opportunity I had. But it was a tough environment to work in. Jesus knows what it's like to be around people who claim to be godly because he was in a Jewish world, so to speak, but didn't live the life that they were supposed to. And when we're tempted to say, you know, this is it, I can't handle any more of this, just remember, no one understands like Jesus. Now, the third way Jesus identified with humanity is in the area of pain and suffering. Isaiah 53 is one of the most beautiful passages in all the Bible. And if you read Corey Ten Boom's um, testimony, you read her book, she talks about how this verse, this chapter, I should say, really changed her life. I'm going to read a few verses. If you have your Bible, read along with the Isaiah 53. We'll start with verse 3. It says, He is despised and rejected by men, men, excuse me, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for what? Our transgressions. 
He was bruised for what? Our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And with, and by His stripes we are what? Healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of who? Us all. Verse 7, He was oppressed and He was afflicted. Yet He opened not His mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Jesus understood pain. Just that one verse alone should tell you how much pain he suffered. But, you know, they TV and movie and so forth have to make it dramatic. They came out with a movie about, I'm guessing it's about 10, 11 years ago now, called The Passion of the Christ. Have you heard of it? Mel Gibson directed and, and put it together, you know, famous actor and producer. And, and they produced this movie. I was determined I was not going to watch it. Finally, one day, the youth leader of, well, I won't mention what conference, one of the conferences that, I, that it, it was a friend of mine, called me up and he said, Ed, you can't talk about it unless you see it. I said, I'd rather not. He said, well, let me show it to you. He was a friend of mine, so he was in town. He brought it by and showed it to me. It was unbelievably gruesome. But as bad as it was, it wasn't nearly as bad as it really was. They showed him, you know, disfigured. Can you imagine the punching, the beating, the whipping, all of the things he went through? There's no question he was beaten brutally. And that movie depicts it very well, the blood and the, the, the goriness of his crucifixion and the events that led up to his crucifixion. However, even that doesn't show. Even as, you know, incredibly graphic as it was, it doesn't show what Jesus really went through. Because that shows the physical side of the pain. But you know, the greatest pain that Jesus experienced wasn't the physical side, was it? It was being rejected. Or at least the feeling of rejection from His Father. Now I want you to think about this. He experienced rejection even before the cross. In John chapter 6, verse 41, the religious leaders come, come to Jesus and they question Him about His Messiahship. First, they attack Him for being a carpenter. They say, you don't become a Messiah from a blue-collar home. They criticize his parentage, knowing that Joseph and Mary were just common folk. And then they hit low, accusing him of being born illegitimate. They said, we don't believe this virgin birth story. We know something else took place. Can you imagine the pain Jesus must have felt to hear those words? Now, when I grew up in New Jersey, I want to tell you, it was a tough, tough town. There were three things you didn't talk about. One was another guy's car. You know, you say, hey, that's a piece of junk Chevy you got. Oh, yeah, well, you're Ford's. And before you know it, you could get into a fight. And it was always Ford and Chevy. You know, Adam had a Ford. Eve had a Chevy. I mean, it's been since the beginning of time. And, and then Seth, Seth came along, you know, later on, and he had a Dodge, you know. And forget about the other cars. They came later. But as it turns out, that was number one. Number two was someone's girlfriend. You say, your girlfriend's ugly. Well, I'll get you into a fight. But if you said something about somebody's mama, you could exit life at an early age. Okay? You did not talk about somebody's mother. That was the big one. You fought for your mother. You defended her pride. And that's the way it was. Can you imagine? Jesus did not have that avenue. 
He could not vent that frustration when they said his mother must have been fooling around. That's why he was born. Think about it, and you think I'm kidding. Listen to these words from Desire of Ages, page 387. They tried to arouse, arouse prejudice by referring scornfully to the lowly origin of Jesus. They contemptuously alluded to his life as a Galilean laborer and to his family as being poor and lowly. The claims of this uneducated carpenter, they said, were unworthy of their attention. And on, listen to the next slide, and on account of his mysterious birth, they insinuated that he was of doubtful parentage, thus representing the human circumstances of his birth as a blot upon his history. What does Sister White say? These people were criticizing him, uh, telling him he was an Ill illegitimate child. Think about that. He had to suffer with that. It was almost, you know, amazing when they would say things like, what good thing can come from where? Nazareth. Remember that? I remember preaching. I had to preach in Kansas some years ago. Uh, my wife had a friend there. I had some family there. My mother was actually born in Topeka, Kansas, and so we were out visiting friends and family, and one of her good friends was a pastor of the church in Coffeyville, Kansas, at the time, and he said, well, you're going to be here through the weekend. Would you preach for me? Okay, I don't mind. He said, I've heard your testimony. My people would love to hear your testimony. Okay, I'd be happy to tell my testimony. I told my testimony. At the, talked about where I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey, and so forth. At the door, as every good pastor does, I'm back there shaking hands with people as they come out. One guy grabs my hand, he pulls me aside, and he looks me in the eye. So you're from Jersey City, huh? He goes, isn't that where organized crime got started? He said, isn't that where Jimmy Hoffa's from? I said, yeah, in fact, he's probably still there somewhere. We just can't find him, you know. In fact, I knew Jimmy Hoppe's nephew I shared with him. He went to high school with me at Dickinson High School in Jersey City. And then I thought about it, and I looked at him, and I said, I wonder what he's trying to say. I said, is that all you got out of the message? And he said, well, it just made me think. You know, isn't that a bad place? And then I started thinking, Jesus was attacked for the place that he grew up. Now, I could hardly understand what Jesus went through, but I got a little picture that he understands what I go through. Amen? No one can understand like Jesus. Now, I want to share with you also that Jesus understands the grief of losing loved ones. You know, I, I just came back. You know, I originally was going to come right here to Reno and then fly right back to Phoenix, but I had to go to Seattle because a good friend of mine and a cousin, kind of a shirt-tail cousin of my wife's, passed away recently. 68 years old, a marathon runner in tremendous physical shape. We couldn't figure out how this could possibly happen. He got Alzheimer's, and it progressively got worse, and eventually uh, hurt himself, fell several times because he was confused, stepped off of you know places where he shouldn't have, and just really sad. Someone in that great shape, he, he ran 40-plus marathons in his life. Two of them in Phoenix. He ran in that P.F. Chang's marathon they do every year in February in Phoenix or January. As it turns out, I was there and I looked at that family and I thought, they're grieving. Now, it was interesting. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we grieve. Now, don't, don't mistake this. It says, do not sorrow as those who have what? No hope. Now, it doesn't say we don't sorrow. 
It just says we don't sorrow as those who have no hope. Now, there's nothing wrong with having sorrow for someone that dies. Nothing wrong with it at all. But you can tell the difference in the kids and grandkids and nieces and nephews who had Jesus and those who didn't. Yes, they were, they were brokenhearted. But when they gave the testimony, when they passed around the mic, they were saying, we know on that great resurrection morning, we will see our loved one again. Those who didn't have that hope, all they could say is, well, I remember when I played golf with Dave, or I remember, you know, and they had to come up with something, but you could see there was a, there was a loss in their, their eyes. God understands what grief is. I want you to think about this. A lot of people will say, Jesus can't possibly understand death. How could He understand the human side of death? No one could understand it better than Jesus. Can you picture this? He lost His second cousin, whatever, once removed, you know, Elizabeth and Zechariah, probably when he was pretty young. Commentators say Joseph probably died when he was a teenager, or maybe in, maybe he made it into his 20s when Joseph died, his father. We don't see him bringing them back to life. We see him raising, you know, uh, Lazarus back to life, and we say, wow, you know, see, he could just bring people back to life, so he doesn't have any problem with death. What about John, his cousin? John was beheaded. He would have loved to have brought him back to life. He was a great preacher, forerunner. The Elijah message of his day. He would have been just so happy to bring him back to life, but he couldn't do it. For whatever reason, it was not in God's divine plan. And so sometimes we lose loved ones, and it's not within God's divine, ultimate will to save them at that particular time. He will save them eventually. There's no question if they've given their life to Christ, they'll be saved in the resurrection. Amen? That's really what it's all about. And what's a life on this earth? If you live 100 years, 110, let's say, you know, you eat all the bean sprouts and pine bark and, you know, that you could possibly eat to keep you alive till you're 120, let's say. What is 120 compared to eternity? It's not a drop in a bucket. It's a drop in a mighty ocean. Can you imagine living forever? That's what God wants for us, to live forever, eternity. But Jesus understands death. Now, going to Jesus with all our problems and needs has been the greatest form of freedom I have ever known in my life. And countless millions throughout history have done the same. Somehow, some way from the inside, when we go to Jesus, who we know completely understands us, when we do that, there's a healing, there's a mending, there's a quieting, there's a refueling, a strengthening, a refocusing that takes place. Do the problems go away? Usually not. Usually they're still there. But we've learned how to handle them. And knowing that Jesus goes through it with us gives us tremendous strength. Amen? Matthew 27, 46 was Jesus' darkest hour on planet Earth. You have a Bible, you can read it. You know the saying, Jesus is just about to die and He cries out. Well, we usually say, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But it's kind of like, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You know, if you want to do it in the Hebrew. He cries out those words. And what are those words? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus, so close to the Father, now experiencing what he feels this incredible separation because sin cannot dwell with God. 
And so sin is placed on Him so that we can have an, a Savior who understands us, the perfect Son of God, the spotless Son of God, now dying for our sins. He felt the rejection like we'll never feel. None of us will ever feel as long as we have our life in Christ. We'll never know what that feeling was like. Have you ever been separated from a loved one for a while? And it's, Yeah, I, I've had experiences. Not too long ago, I remember taking my kids to Southern... Adventist University. First one was my son. He's the oldest. Took him down there, dropped him off. He wanted to go to Southern. Took him, dropped him off. And, you know, I was trying to be the tough dad, you know. Son, you're going to do great. Man, way to go. Find a wife. You know, get a degree. You know, <laughs> slap him on the back. I'm ready to leave. I jump in the car. My wife's there going, why do you want to leave so fast? I said, well, let's, go, let's go before he sees me. Don't want him to see me crying, right? She jumps in the car. No, I want to say goodbye. We need to talk to him and tell him what to, and show him where the stores are. He'll figure it out. He'll figure it out. Yeah. And so she gets in the car. About the first, you know, we drove from Arizona. It's 1,900 miles, you know. And we get in the car. The first maybe six hours, there wasn't a word said. We were just crying. We've been together for 19 years. Even when he was in academy, we lived right there next to Thunderbird Academy, so we saw him, you know, every day. First time we're going to be away from him for three or four months until Christmas break. And so we felt that pain of separation. Now, it was worse with my daughter, I have to admit. You know, something about daughters, they get dad, you know, under their thumb, you know. And I went there and I couldn't hide. It was just flowing. And my daughter's looking at me, Dad, what are you crying about? Didn't you want me to go to college where Andrew is, you know, to take care of me? Yeah, I did, you know, but I know your brother, and he's probably got other pursuits, you know. He may not watch you the way I would, you know. And again, I felt that separation, that anxiety. Can you picture Jesus, who spent not just 17, 18, 19 years with the Father, but eternity, now feeling separation. What an incredible feeling that must have been for him. And you know, according to Sister White, he could not see beyond the portals of the what? The grave, the tomb. He couldn't see beyond that. He wasn't sure. Yes, he trusted and confided in God. He believed that God was going to save him, but he wasn't sure. He didn't know what sin was going to do with him when he was in the grave, but he still went to that grave for you and me. Amen? Willing to do it so that we might be saved. Can you picture the pain that Jesus... And Jesus also understands our temptations. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points, what's the rest of it? Tempted as we are, yet without sin. Can you picture if Jesus came? I've heard different theories on this. I've listened to a lot of theology, studied a lot of books, and there are guys that said, well, Jesus had a perfectly divine he couldn't understand humanity really he, he he didn't have a human nature there wasn't no part of him that was human it was all divine so he didn't really understand temptation like we do oh really eh, what is the desire of ages page 24 if we had to bear anything which jesus did not endure then upon this point satan would represent the power of god as insufficient for us Satan's, the great controversy, Satan would win the argument if that was the case. Therefore, Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. He endured every trial to which we are subject 
and he exercised in his own behalf no power that is not freely offered to us. As man he met temptation and overcame in the strength given him from God. Amen? Can we overcome temptation tonight? Indeed, as a human being, frail as we may be, we can go to the Father, link with Him. And when we're in His arms, in His hands, we can overcome those temptations. There's no question about Hebrews chapter 2. Another Hebrews verse. Verse 17 through 18. Therefore, in all things He had to be made like His brethren. That's you and me that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things per- pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Do you believe this? Do you believe it enough to act upon it today? When you're tempted to say, I give up, enough is enough. Will you put your life completely in God's hands and trust Him? I'm going to close with a story. I was pastoring in Atlantic City. Brand new. Oh, no, I wasn't pastoring. Not yet. A new pastor came to town. I was planning on going to school for theology, but at the time I was still working with the paramedics. And this new pastor came to town, who, by the way, is now the conference president in the Washington Conference. His name is John Friedman. Uh, John came to town as the new pastor. And I was giving Bible studies around town. Just, you know, anyone can give a Bible study. Amen? You study your Bible. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be, well, you are a theologian if you're studying the Bible. That's what the word means, the study of God. But you don't have to be in, you know, divinity school, so to speak, to give a Bible study. So I was giving Bible studies to everyone I could possibly give a Bible study to. He came, this John Freeman gave me a little card. It was from It Is Written. And he said, can you visit this guy? Says he's interested in Bible studies. I said, okay, I'd be happy to do that. The card said he received such and such a book and such and such a thing. I went to his house. I said, hi, my name is Ed Keys. Uh, I said, I represent the It Is Written uh, company that you got, your, you got this such and such a book from and so forth. I said, uh, it says here you're interested in Bible studies. And he looked at me and said, I thought I was going to get them in the mail. I said, well, this is kind of the mail. You know, I, I, I'm bringing it to you. you know, I'm delivering it to you. He goes, okay, well, that's all right, come on in. So I come in, I sit down with him, and I look around, and I see pictures, and you know, you kind of, you remember Fort, family, occupation, religion, and testimony. So I start doing the Fort thing, I said, oh, so tell me about your friend, he tells me a little bit about his friend, not a lot, but a little bit, and then he tells me a little bit about what he did for a living, where he worked, and so forth. Then it went into religion, you know, and how he was raised, and he was raised Southern Baptist. I said, well, I can relate to that, and so forth. Then I gave him a little bit of my testimony, how I became a Christian, and so forth. After I shared that, we got into a Bible study. We started studying the Bible. Now, he had been listening or watching TV, George Vandeman. How many of you remember George Vandeman? Okay, most of you do. George Vandeman was a great preacher, outstanding preacher, one of the best, you know, I ever heard. George Vandeman was his favorite preacher. Now, he watched other preachers, Billy Graham and other guys on TV, but he was impressed with George Vandeman. So I said, well, you know, George Vandeman's a member of my church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and we got into discussion and so forth, and we started studying the Bible together. Well, it started getting to some of the deeper subjects, and I said, I better bring the pastor in on this. So I called Pastor John. I said, John, um, I'm getting into some of these heavy subjects like State of the Dead and so forth. Do you want to come with me? He goes, oh, sure, I'd be happy to come with you. He goes, when do you have a schedule? Well, we have our Bible studies on Tuesday night, 
He said, all right, I'll meet you at your house. I'll pick you up and take you. So he came to my house, picked me up, took me over to, to uh, this fellow's house. And as we got there, he looked around at the neighborhood and he goes, is it safe here? I said, well, anywhere with Jesus, I can safely go. Now, when you tell that to a pastor, sometimes they get a little upset. They feel like, uh-oh, I should have known that, right? Now, this was the rough section of town. And so he gets out of the car and he goes, should I lock the door? Oh, yeah, that you should do. And if you have one of those uh, bar things, put it on there. In fact, let's just pop the hood and take the distributor cap, you know, because your car may not be here when we get back. He goes, are you serious? I said, yeah, no one would touch my car. I was driving around in what we called a piece of junk in those days. An old, beat up, I mean, $150 Buick. I mean, it was falling apart, and that's, you know, we, Ron Halverson calls it a ghetto car. So I had a ghetto car. Well, we took his nice car, parked in front of this place, got out, walked inside, knocked on the door, met them. I said, this is my pastor, introduced him. We sat there while we were in the middle of the Bible study. There was a drive-by shooting in the neighborhood. We heard the guns, heard windows, glass breaking, and so forth. And me and this fellow that I'm having Bible studies with, his name was Henry. Me and Henry are sitting there, and the pastor was under the couch. And I said, well, it's a little too late now. You heard the wheels peel. They're gone. So he comes up out from under the couch. We sit down. We go through this Bible study with this fellow. And John was a little better at getting information out of him than I was. Found out that he had lost a son in a tragic fire. House burned down while he was at work. He lost his wife to kidney disease. Lost his daughter, just disappeared. She's like one of those, if it was today, that would have been on the back of a milk carton. He had a miserable, miserable life. But he found hope in Jesus Christ. He found salvation in Jesus Christ. In fact, he was the one that shared with me that little song, No One Understands Like Jesus. He said, the only way I can get through life after all I've been through is to know that Jesus understands me. He's a friend. What's the rest of the song? Beyond compare. You can't compare any friendship you have on planet Earth to that of Jesus. Amen? Today, more than any other day, right here, I'll go moving into you know, the second half of 2013. I would pray that you would say, I want to make Jesus my best friend all over again. If you feel that way, would you stand with me as we have our closing prayer? Our gracious Father in heaven, Lord, tonight we've looked at another aspect of the life of our loving, wonderful Savior Jesus. We've seen Him as a son and how... He was submissive to you, and we want to emulate that. We want to be submissive to you. But we've also seen how He understands us. He came to this planet not only to be a Savior, but a sympathetic, understanding Savior who understands all of our all of our trials, tribulations, troubles, and needs. And so, Lord, tonight, we want to put our lives in Your hand again, and we want to make Jesus, once again, our best friend. Lord, we have many good friends here on this earth. Maybe a spouse, a child, a, a family member that we love, a co-worker. People that we love deeply have been friendly to us and been caring with us. But they don't even compare to what Jesus is like. Always willing to help us in a time of need. So I pray tonight, Lord, that...
that as we think of Jesus, that we meditate upon Him, and that we completely and fully give our lives to Him again tonight. For I pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. God bless you and have a wonderful night's rest.